Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude and over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hello, friends. Today I've got an interview for you. Um, If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen me uh, um, apply my CGM sensor, continuous glucose monitor sensor, to my arm. And I've been experimenting with the CGM for uh, around two months, and a lot of you had questions about it. So I am pulling in Kara Collier, who's an RD. She is the director of nutrition for this company, NutriSense, where I've been using I've been using their CGM. And um, we're going to talk all about it. And I wrote an, a blog on my website. When's the last time I wrote a blog? I don't even know. Guess who's Bizak? And it outlines my experience with it. So you can check that out there. We're going to get into a little bit more of like, what is a CGM? How do you use it? What does it do? What's the technology behind it? Kara's pretty much an expert here. She oversees all of this within NutriSense. So she is the go-to gal for this. Um, Before we do, before I let you uh, hear the interview, because I think what happens is we can hear about something, we get super excited, we want to try it, but I want to outline who... I don't think a CGM would be a good fit for. Um, Definitely anyone with an active eating disorder or eating disorder tendencies, NutriSense does a really good job for trying to screen out eating disorders. Uh, They have an initial questionnaire and they're, they're assessing for this because they understand that this type of data collection can be a massive trigger for disordered thought patterns and behaviors. Um, This is one of those times that I'm going to ask you to be radically honest with yourself. If tracking data tends to make you feel neurotic or hypervigilant, I really would not recommend a CGM. Even if you don't have a history of eating disorders, what we're looking for in this with this technology is to assess overall patterns. So if you're somebody who tends to get caught up in the minutia, if you can become obsessive about tracking um, and assessing every individual marker, every stat, every value, if you're somebody who's like, ever is like, kind of like, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? I've definitely worked with a lot of clients like that. So for that type of population, I would say not your best bet because it's going to create a lot of stress. It's going to create a lot of neuroses. You're going to be in your brain a lot. You're going to be thinking, you're going to be analyzing not really the ideal scenario. If you have the capability of stepping back and assessing overall patterns, then a CGM could be a really good fit 
for you. Um, I also wouldn't recommend a CGM as like your first jump off point. If you're looking to dip your toe into the world of healthy eating, if you're looking to clean up your diet, if you're just looking to kind of like get healthy, then this is not the first place to start. Get a handle on eating well first. You can do a nutrition program like my Eat to Achieve or the Carb Compatibility Project. But this is not your getting started place. It's kind of like a a next level for those who are looking to dial in and personalize your already, you know, good established behaviors. We're, I'm always going to advocate for starting with the basics, whole foods diet, manage your stress, move your body, work on sleep hygiene before you dive into the the higher level stuff. And I would definitely continue uh, consider a CGM more high level stuff. So if you haven't covered the basics, you can't skip steps. I mean, that's like a an overall theme of the work that I do in this podcast. You can't skip, skip, skip steps. Just like you cannot out adaptogen and out supplement a stress response in your body, you're not going to be able to slap a sensor on your body and like fix all of your health problems. So just understand that this is not like the the solution to everything, but it can certainly help folks dial in their um, dial in their eating behaviors a little bit more, especially as it relates to blood sugar. And finally, I want to shout out the connection between the gut and blood sugar, because there's a lot of different things that can contribute to insulin signaling and our microbiome is one of them. Our gut health is one of them. And you know, BioCult is a proud sponsor of this show. And one of the reasons that I love their probiotics, they do a lot of studies on them. So um, I'm a, kind of a geek for studies, if you if you haven't picked up on that yet. Um, one thing that I thought was extremely cool is that they studied their probiotic strains uh, specifically for insulin resistance and lipid, propile, lipid profiles for people with metabolic syndrome. And what they found was improvements in triglycerides and also in insulin resistance by uh, looking at something called the HOMA IR, which is actually something that I assess in your hormone revival when I'm assessing insulin, when I'm assessing blood sugar. And um, we there was, there was pro- improvements based on using these probiotics and doing some lifestyle changes. Now, obviously a probiotic is not going to be the thing to like fix your gut and then therefore fix your insulin, but it is part of the overall picture. So BioCult, you can head to their website. It is my most recommended everyday product. My favorite is the Boosted. You can save 20% by using the code FUNK20. It's obviously linked up in the show notes for you. So I guess that's all I wanted to say. Um, Now get ready to learn about the CGM. All right, Kara, thank you so much for being here. I think that it makes sense, since we haven't talked about CGMs on the show at all, it makes sense to really just start there. So what is a CGM and why would somebody want to do it? Yeah, great question. So um, CGM stands for Continuous Glucose Monitor, and in the U.S. it is technically a medical device. So um, you do need a prescription, and that's part of the reason that we started this company to make sure 
more people can get it because there's this barrier if you're not a diabetic. So traditionally it's used if you're an insulin-dependent type 1 or type 2 diabetic. Um, but it's this small device, and with the one we use, you put it on the back of your arm at home. You don't need to go into a clinic or have your doctor insert it. It's very easy. Uh, I always describe it as an easy button. It comes in this little applicator, and you just push the button on the back of your arm, and then it's in there. And it's super painless. And then for 14 full days, you have this device on the back of your arm, and it is measuring your glucose constantly so as soon as you want to know what's happening with your glucose inside your body you just take your phone where we have our app and you scan it over the device and then you get a new updated version of your glucose data so the device itself um, we use the abbott freestyle libre and it holds up to eight hours of data at a time so you know if you wake up in the morning and you scan you get the last eight hours while you're sleeping and so this is really one of the only devices where we can get this 24-7 graph of what's going on on the inside. And that's really why this is so insightful and interesting for everybody to monitor, because we can see not just a one snapshot in time what your glucose is, you know, maybe at an annual doctor's visit, but we can see the nuances in your day-to-day -day patterns. And we can see, you know, maybe the one day was higher values, but overall you look really good. Or maybe there's this one meal you eat every lunch that's really causing you to have high glucose values, but we, we didn't know that in these traditional snapshot measures. So it's really this device to get this continuous insight specifically about glucose. Um, and, and that's sort of CGM in, in a nutshell. So it's a disposable device. Once the 14 days is done, you take it off and toss it. You can't reuse it. You would need to get a new one then if you wanted more data. Um, and it's, you know, it's really simple. I think a lot of people, common questions are, can I shower with this on? You know, can I work out with this on? It stays on just like normal. You can do all your normal daily activities. And it's just this really painless and non-obtrusive device. I know you've worn a few, so you might be able to speak to that as well, because people don't always believe me when I say it's painless, but it truly is very simple to put on and wear. That is one of the, the most common questions I get about it. Yeah. Is, does it hurt? And I was nervous about it too. I cannot, honestly, one of the reasons that I was interested in trialing this versus getting a, a blood glucose monitor, you know, like a finger mm -hmm. prick, which you could get at the, the drugstore or something. And I have one of those. I have really poor circulation. So pricking my finger and drawing blood every day or after meals is really, it's a, it's a bad experience for me. Yeah. And this is just so seamless. You just pop it on. I mean, it really is very user-friendly. Um, you just pop it on. It doesn't hurt. That You don't even realize that it's there. And right, like I take a lot of baths and I, I am in the sauna like a few times a week and there's been absolutely no problem with it in regards to any of that kind of stuff. It doesn't fall off. It just stays right in place. Um, and as far as what you were saying, like, so we get to see data in real time versus just having a, a snapshot. I mean, I am all, all for testing fasting glucose and, and testing hemoglobin A1C and fasting insulin. And I do that really regularly, but 
that doesn't give us all of the data. That doesn't give us all of the information that we need. And so when I see values on folks and I'm like, something weird is going on here. Like something's a little suspect and I'm not able to glean as much information as I want to. Want to. Um, historically, what I've done is recommend they do some trials with a, you know, a finger prick. And it's just like the compliance isn't super high because it's, it's not fun. It's, it's challenging. It's cumbersome. And so this can be a really great um, way to get better data, like more consistently without having to do all of the finger pricking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the finger pricks are, you know, and I love this type of data and I love doing these types of things. And I even don't have great compliance with the finger pricks because it's not fun. You have to actually draw blood. And while it's not super painful, it's uncomfortable. And if you're doing it a lot, your fingers do get sore. Um, So I empathize with, you know, diabetics who are doing this regularly because it is uncomfortable. Um, So this, you know, one of the benefits of the CGM is just that it's so easy and painful painless and convenient. But really, you know, your audience is aware of how important glucose is as a metric to be monitoring. I always describe it as a vital sign because it's not just telling you how your diet's doing, but it's also giving us insight into all these like core pillars of good health, you know, exercise, sleep, stress, environment, all of these things. And so if we really understand the importance of glucose as a metric and we really care about monitoring that, then that's why I think everybody should wear a CGM at least once, even if it's just those two weeks, because you get all these insights around glucose that you just really can't know otherwise. You know, you don't know the data while you're sleeping because I would not recommend waking yourself up to do a finger prick. Um, you don't know the exact nuances of your postprandial responses to meals. Because if you're trying to monitor that with a finger prick and you're measuring it maybe two hours after, you don't know what happened in that two hours or what happened after that two hours, where those kind of shapes of how you're responding to meals is really insightful. Um, So all these different trends that we can learn so much information about somebody's habits and lifestyle and what's working and what needs some improvement by just getting this continuous data. Uh, So that's really kind of why I think it's very important for people to try this out, not just if you're a diabetic, but if you care about, you know, preventative health and really dialing in your diet and exercise and, and monitoring stress and sleep and preventing conditions like diabetes and and cardiovascular disease. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Can you um, talk to us a little bit about, um, so, you know, like normal versus optimal glucose levels? Because if somebody has, is, you know, goes to their primary care provider and gets their blood sugar test and they're like, well, I'm fine, right? I'm totally fine. because my blood sugars look good. I mean, we t- I talk a lot about like functional lab ranges and how they different than, you know, reference ranges at a lab. Is it kind of the same thing here with glucose yeah. levels? That's exactly right. You know, it's, it's very important to know what is an optimal reference range versus like, you know, something you might get from a standard lab, because that's really just, you know, standard deviation of the average population they're monitoring, which isn't always equivalent to optimal outcomes. So when we're really looking through the lens of optimal glucose values for the measure of being, you know, preventative and having really great metabolic health, uh, when we're looking at that fasted glucose value, we're 
you know, typically looking for a range between 70 to 90, where a typical reference range might just say anything under 100 is okay. Um, so we're looking at a little tighter range there. And again, this is about trends. Um, so if you wear one sensor 14 days, you get 14 different days of fasting glucose values. And so we wanna look at that overall value and aim for 70 to 90 most of the time. Um, so that's one metric. And then the other is how you're responding in a fed state. Um, fasted glucose is very interesting and useful, but really where I think the most insights come and the most you know, prediction for overall health outcomes is how you're responding to meals, which is really hard to capture in any of these standard labs. Um, you know, Hemoglobin A1C is an average of your glucose, which is helpful, but it's not really telling us how you're responding to meals and how you're fluctuating throughout the day. Um, so with that postprandial or, or after meal response, we're looking for a few different things. We're looking for how high does the absolute value go. Um, typically, we're looking for an absolute value of 140 or less most of the time. And again, this is about repetition. Um, because when we see spikes above 140 every day, then that's when we start to see some damage occur. Um, so if you have a spike of 140 once at Thanksgiving or your birthday or on a weekend, um, that's okay. You know, your body has mechanisms in place to compensate for this. But if you're seeing a spike above 140 every single morning with your go-to breakfast, we might want to adjust that meal and find something that works a little better for you. Um, so we're looking at that absolute value. And then we're also looking at the shape of the postprandial curve. So did your glucose spike to 130, but then it came back down in one hour? That's a very small area under the curve. That would be a much more desirable response than somebody who spikes up to 130 and then slowly comes back down over four or five hours. Um, so we're aiming for a return back to about pre-meal glucose values at two to three hours after eating. Um, so, you know, if you started before your meal, your glucose was around 90 and then it went up to 120 and then at three hours, it's back down to like 95, that would be a good healthy response. Uh, so those are kind of the things we're looking for in that postprandial response. And then there is a third metric called glycemic variability. And this just looks at your swings in your glucose, glucose throughout the day. So are you going, you know, really high, then really low and kind of fluctuating in these large swings? That is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease in particular, because um, it can be damaging to that you know, endothelial tissue and vascular system. Um, so in our app, we use standard deviation to monitor this, um, and we're looking for a standard deviation below 20 with less than 14 optimal. And that's a metric to kind of look and see how far you're deviating from your average throughout the day. And this is also a really good proxy for insulin sensitivity and your insulin in a postprandial state, um, which is something that's kind of also a little tricky to measure with some traditional labs. So those are the three things we're really looking at in somebody's CGM data. And it's so, um, so cool. Like, I mean, you keep reinforcing this idea that we don't get the, all of this data by testing fasting insulin, fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, even those are, are really important markers to take a peek at. It's not 
giving us the full picture. You know, we were talking earlier about how we get to monitor what's happening overnight. For me, I was like, whoa, this is so cool because, I mean, how else would I ever see that? And something that I, I talk a lot about and certainly have said here on the show, um, in your hormone, in my, my program, Your Hormone Revival, we, um, of course, I'm looking at hormones, I'm looking at cortisol, we're looking at um, in the insomnia picture, if somebody's waking up in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. if their uh, nighttime cortisol is elevated, a lot of the reason for that is because blood sugar is dropping low, right? And so we get this like this adrenaline pitch and this this cortisol spike a little you know a few minutes later, when you're wearing a CGM, you actually get to say like is actually is this actually what's causing it? Because we can go after cortisol all day long, but if our blood glucose is dropping low at night, like that's really the intervention that needs to be, you know, first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that's something where I think a CGM is also really helpful just to speed up that like learning curve trial and error. Like if you're trying to figure out like how am I responding to my diet or you know why am I waking up in the middle of the night, all these different things, it might take a lot longer without this data to figure out what's driving the response. Whereas if you put one of these on, you know, if you're having trouble sleeping and you see right away, oh, every night I dip really low at 3 a.m., you know, that really brings you right to what might be happening. And we have a lot of people who come to us actually because they're either having trouble sleeping or they're concerned that they might be getting hypoglycemic even though they're not diabetic. So, you know, they're feeling shaky at certain parts of the day um, or maybe, you know, waking up often in the middle of the night. And so that's something we talk about a lot with people. Uh, There's two different types of hypoglycemia. You know, there can be reactive where you're getting that glucose drop and feelings of shakiness and sweating after a meal. And typically that's because of like what you're choosing in your meal. Um, Maybe too many carbohydrates or too many refined carbohydrates um, or maybe exercising timing around your meal. But then there's the fasting hypoglycemia. So this would be, you know, random bouts of hypoglycemia when you're not eating, and usually this occurs while you're sleeping. And one of the most common reasons for this is either, you know, really high stress levels, um, abnormal cortisol, and also any sort of underlying, uh, like, thyroid issues. So hypothyroidism can also cause some of this fasting hypoglycemia. So there's, you know, multiple potential causes, but we can really hone in depending on where we're seeing those drops in glucose and what your symptoms are, you know, what you're doing before or after to figure out what exactly might be driving that response. Let's talk about, because you're, you're, you're kind of talking about it already, but what can be impacting glucose control beyond just diet? Because that was, that like I was saying earlier, that was a big maybe it was before we were recording, a big insight for me is that, okay, on the days that, for, for, for the most part, my glucose control is pretty great. Um, there's definitely, I did def- definitely discovered specific foods that are not so great. Dates and go macro bars, weirdly enough, are like two that just send my <laughs> blood sugar into the stratosphere. I mean, it comes down pretty quickly, but it's still like a very different response than other foods. But, um, but the big like big eye opener for me was how much my blood sugar control is impacted when on days that I'm really stressed out. So 
can talk talk to us a little bit more about um, what can impact these glucose values beyond just the food that we're eating? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a few core pillars of glucose control that are going to have the biggest impact on your glucose values. Um, so of course, you know, diet and nutrition is number one, but there's also meal timing and the when of your eating. So how often are you eating? What time of day are you eating? Most people tend to be less insulin sensitive in the evening and later at night. Um, so if a lot of people are eating kind of right before bed or have a super late dinner, they might see really high fasting and overnight glucose values. So that's one pillar. Um, of course, another is exercise and just general movement. Um, so not just how much you're going to the gym and, and what you're doing at the gym, but also how much you're moving throughout the day, walking in general is all really amazing for our glucose control. But then the two big ones, the other two pillars are both sleep and stress. Um, so really these are just as important as your diet or your exercise. Um, they have a very meaningful impact on glucose values. So to talk about stress a little bit more, um, you know, we have a normal acute stress response that is healthy and we want to have, and, and that means it's a stimulation of cortisol and adrenaline, which then tells the liver we need glucose because we're in a stressful situation and we need energy. Um, so the liver makes some glucose, it breaks down our glucose stores, and it also reduces our insulin sensitivity a little bit because it's saying, you know, we have extra glucose because we're under stress and we want the body to be able to use it. Uh, so in a normal acute stress response, like, you know, you're about to do some sort of performance or you're in a traffic jam, you might see a glucose spike. Um, but then there's also chronic stress, and this is the same exact situation as acute stress to our body, except where it's happening all the time. Um, so this is where we really see higher fasting glucose values and overnight glucose values, and then just averages that are slightly higher in these people that are more chronically stressed, because we're having this constant stimulation of cortisol and adrenaline and we're constantly producing more glucose and decreasing our insulin sensitivity. So it's this feedback loop that we get kind of stuck in, unfortunately. And this can also impact your energy and your food cravings and your mood, which also is a feedback cycle that you know we get a little stuck into. So for these people, a lot of times the glucose data is a good awareness moment to show that maybe I'm under more stress than I thought I was if we're always seeing those morning values kind of higher than they should be. And, you know, it can quantify data that is sometimes hard to grasp. Um, something like stress is difficult sometimes for people to get a good understanding of how stressed they really are. But when we can see this data, we can see, okay, maybe this is more of an issue than I thought. And that helps to bring, you know, awareness and importance to doing things like mindfulness or, you know, getting outdoor time, you know, personal time, whatever it is to help bring down those stress levels. But that is a major impact on our glucose values. Hey, let's take a quick break so we can talk about low sugar nutrition. I'm always looking for kind of quick and dirty ways to pack in extra nutrition, polyphenols, antioxidants, fibers for my gut, and even herbs for my stress response, like the more adaptogens, the better, which is why I use 
Organifi powders every day, several times a day. I love to put them into my water. This is great if you're one of those people that struggles to just get enough hydration, get enough water. And if you feel like water's really boring, these powders can zhuzh it up for you. My kiddo loves them. She feels like she's drinking juice. I also throw them into my smoothies just as a way to get some extra nutrition. My personal favorite is the red juice. So it has lots of different red powders, things like acai, cranberry, pomegranate, strawberry, raspberry, blueberry, all of those polyphenol-rich red and blue powders. And if you've listened to the show or you've seen me on Instagram, you've heard me talk about the benefits of these powders. They feed a very unique and particular type of bacteria in your gut called Acromantia. Acromantia is a keystone player. It's wicked important for keeping your gut healthy and strong. It prevents leaky gut. It also is very important for metabolic health and insulin signaling and controlling blood sugar. Now, unfortunately, I do a lot of stool tests on people and see that acromantia is low, sometimes even below detectable limits. That's a real bummer. Some of the bacteria in our guts are little piggies. They'll eat anything. And then some bacteria are more like snobby foodies that will only eat specific things. This acromantia bacteria loves to eat red polyphenols. So the more red foods you can eat, the better. And getting red powders is super important as well. So the red juice is something that you can grab super easy and it's low sugar. All of Organifi's powders are under three grams of sugar per serving. And most of them offer up fiber as well to counteract any spike in blood sugar. So highly recommend, I throw them in my smoothie so I can pack in a bunch of veggies without adding a ton of fruit that might spike my blood sugar. And I can still make them sweet and palatable. Go to Organifi's website, Organifi.com. You can click the link in the show notes. Be sure to use the code FUNK. It will save you 20% off of every single order you ever place. You get a good deal and you get to support all the good things in your body too. Yeah. I mean, the data can be the thing that really motivates somebody to say, okay, it's like really time to make a change now. You know, mm-hmm. I, you see it on the, the, you know, on with the CGM the glucose side of things. I tend to see it with hormone side of things, but just seeing the, the data on paper or, you know, on a screen, you're like, yeah. oh, okay. I can't, I can't ignore this anymore. It's like, you're really confronted with the changes that, that need to be made. Um, and then as far as the exercise piece, what I thought was kind of interesting because, you know, we, we talk a lot about, um, high intensity interval training, being able to clear glucose from the blood pretty quickly. And I did a lot of experimentation with different types of movement. And I found that I had the same response with, hit training or higher intensity training and walking. Like they both did the same thing to my blood sugars, which I thought was pretty cool because some folks, especially if they're in this entanglement of insulin resistance and, um, you know, blood sugar dysregulation, they can be really fatigued too. And Mm -hmm. so it's not always super appropriate to tell somebody to be like, just work out as hard as you possibly can. That's what you got to do for your blood sugar control, right? It's like people are being told, go keto and do interval training. And that could actually be a a disaster for a lot of folks, but walking, I'm so glad that you emphasize how 
important and powerful that can be for glucose control as well. Yeah, and, and that's really interesting. And that's, you know, one of the underlying themes that we always talk about is with exercise, with diet, with all of these different factors, it really is there's like no one size fits all and everyone has unique responses and their glucose values to different changes we might, you know, try out because we're all unique at the end of the day. So for some people, just like you said, adding in that those hit workouts throughout the week actually might do, you know, more damage than good because we're overstressing the system. Uh, so it really is interesting how people respond differently. And then you can see that with the data of, okay, is this overall causing my values to trend down? Um, usually, you know, exercise in general is a good thing for our glucose values and it helps lower our glucose values overall. Even if there's a spike in the moment from something that's a little higher intensity to fuel that workout. Um, but if you're seeing things trend up for something you think is a good thing, then we might have to dial back or, you know, rearrange our interventions or things that we're, we're trying out. And to reinforce this idea of we're looking for trends, that's what it's all mm -hmm. about. Um, the, so when I was in the sauna the first time, I, I got a pretty big spike and I was like, oh no, what's happening? But it came right back down. And like that, I think, I think if somebody's very, um, you know, is really, how do I want to say this? Hypervigilant in regards to the data is this fixating on every single data point that can become more of a stressful situation versus taking a big step back and just looking and assessing for overall trends. I think that that is the most important thing. And I know that you guys really emphasize that point. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and that is part of the reason we also include, you know, a real trained dietitian to help you know, answer your questions and chat with you through the app because we don't want people losing sight of the bigger picture if they're worried about, you know, one particular response or one bad day. So we do have dietitians available to kind of help explain what's going on, you know, things that are more important versus not as important responses and really get that big picture idea. Because we do want to take a step back and look at trends and see how things are looking overall and not, you know, very specific one minute in time. That's the benefit of a CGM is you get to see these trends rather than a snapshot in time. So that's how we want to look at it. And you had talked earlier about, I forget the, the term that you use, but it's, it's um, kind of like paying attention to dramatic spikes and crashes, like the, the high and the low points and how you were saying that that's a, can be an, an indicator or a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. If, if you're seeing that, what are solutions or what would you recommend if somebody's experiencing big dramatic swings and crashes? Yeah, so the big swings and crashes is typically related to diet. Um, it can be due to other things, but diet is, is the biggest aspect there. So, you know, within our app, you're also able to log what you're eating and when you're eating it so that you can correlate you know, I ate at noon and then I had this big spike and then a big dip and this was exactly what I ate. And then we can see, okay, let's try that meal again, but omit this one ingredient, see how that response differs. Sometimes, you know, the big spike and dip is just too many carbohydrates in one sitting for somebody, or maybe the wrong 
type or specific carbohydrate in your meal. Um, so sometimes if we have too many carbohydrates, we can be stimulating a lot of insulin to take care of that. And if our cells are really sensitive to that signal from insulin, it can basically overcompensate. So, you know, we have a spike and then insulin is sent out and then we have a dip because we sent out too much insulin for that response, essentially. So sometimes it's just tweaking what you put in your meal or maybe when you ate that. Um, and so again, that can be kind of like a trial and error. You can try that meal again tomorrow with a different ingredient swapped out and see how it responds. But we don't want that reactive hypoglycemia after a meal because for multiple reasons, you know, like we said, it's an independent risk factor for poor outcomes, but it also makes you feel crappy usually. You know, that's usually also associated with an energy crash, um, feeling like you need to take a nap after a meal, or, you know, a lot of times then that stimulates hunger right after because when our glucose gets low, our body thinks, oh no, we don't have enough energy, I need to eat more. So you might have just eaten a bunch, but have that crash and then you feel hungry again. Um, so a lot of times it's just tweaking what you're putting in your meal, specifically around carbohydrates. Do you ever see, um, and I don't know if you, if you have, would be able to answer this question. I'm just curious, um, reactions to, if somebody's consuming a food that they're sensitive to, would that, would that change their glucose levels? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and we certainly see a correlation with this sometimes, but not always. So it's not a perfect relationship. Um, so food sensitivities, you know, symptoms can sometimes be slow and gradual, but in general, it tends to trigger an inflammatory response. So there is research, mostly just in my studies, that these type of like IgG sensitivity responses can reduce insulin sensitivity, which then causes a higher glucose response. But it's not always the case. So sometimes somebody will have a food that they know they're sensitive to and they'll eat it and their glucose looks okay. Whereas other times they don't know they have sensitivity, they eat it and we have a spike and we can't really explain it. And then later they find out that they do actually have a sensitivity to that food. I had somebody recently who kept having a glucose spike to macadamia nuts, which would, it comes as a surprise. You know, it's mostly fat and protein. You don't expect to have a glucose spike from that. And then they did get, you know, a food sensitivity response or test back that showed that was the kind of their highest food for, you know, their IgG reaction. So um, it's not a perfect connection though. So I wouldn't say that that's a great test to see if you're sensitive or not, but there can be correlations there. Oh, that's really cool about the macadamia nuts. Yeah. They're just interesting. Um, all right, last question. I'm curious, you know, we're talking about blood sugar, and I, I just feel like wandering minds are immediately going to go to ketogenic or intermittent fasting. And I'm just curious to hear your thought, your viewpoint. I mean, this is like such a loaded question. <laughs> I'm like, you have two minutes to answer this question. Um, but just generalize based on all of the data that you've seen, because at this point you've seen a lot, what are your thoughts around this? And when do you think it would be a useful tool? When would you suggest mm -hmm. either of these tools, if at all? Yeah, it is a loaded question. I could probably do a whole episode on just this question, but um, I will try to keep it brief. In general, I think that with starting with the ketogenic diet, I think it is never like necessary in the stance that like this is the only option we have towards health or like good glucose values. But I think it can work well for a lot of people if they're a good fit for a ketogenic diet. 
So there's multiple things that make you a good fit or not, but I think the biggest one is just somebody's le- like ability to stick to a more strict diet. You know, if you're someone where you have trouble or, or you feel restricted with something like that, then it can do more harm than good. And I think that's something that you really should take into consideration because we don't want to do something for two weeks and then kind of binge and then, you know, go back on it and have this cycle. Um, so if somebody doesn't, isn't bothered by having a slightly more restrictive diet, I think it can be helpful, especially if you're showing signs of insulin resistance. Um, Or if we're really seeing that you're kind of metabolically inflexible to maybe fat or you're having hunger all day. Um, There's multiple reasons that I think ketogenic can be super, super helpful. And it's also uniquely anti-inflammatory. So especially for my people who are showing signs of prediabetes or early stage diabetes, I think it's really can be an amazing tool if you're a good fit for it and you think you'll be able to stick to it. I also don't think you need to do a ketogenic diet forever. Um, I think like a cyclical ketosis is also an awesome tool for many people. And that's something that's kind of hard to achieve without the CGM data because you don't know how many carbs can I do and you know still be able to cycle in and out? Like when should I eat the carbs? What type of carbs? So for people who are kind of looking for that more cyclical approach, this is also a pretty cool tool for that. Um, So that's kind of like a very short thoughts on ketogenic. Uh, And then intermittent fasting, I kind of feel the same way where actually, you know, I think for most people we can do some very basic daily fasting golden rules. Like I would say like most people can benefit from fasting at least like 14 hours a day and trying to avoid food at least three hours before bed and then kind of avoiding that grazing constant eating. I think those are three good like golden rules most people could follow and have good outcomes. And then from there, I think there's lots of wiggle room. You know, there's some people I wouldn't even recommend that for if you're really underweight or really overstressed or um, pregnant, you know, breastfeeding. But there's a lot of people where I would recommend even longer fasting. And again, especially my insulin resistant folks. So with, you know, and this was something that was really eye-opening when you start to see like thousands of people's glucose data is if you're insulin resistant or diabetic, um, we can get those swings down and we can get those spikes down with dietary changes, but it's really hard to get your fasting glucose from, you know, 110 to that 90 range with just the basics of diet and exercise. Fasting and and longer fast has been one of the best tools we have found in order for you to go from that controlled diabetes to like back to normal glucose ranges because it forces the liver to figure out, you know, how to process glucose normally. So in that fasted state, our liver is really in charge of deciding how much glucose are we putting out into circulation? You know, what are the glucose stores looking like? And in an insulin resistant person, this is really dysregulated. So in that fasted state, um, we have trouble and we tend to put out more glucose than the body actually needs. So these longer fasts and, and kind of, you know, maybe like a, there's different protocols that people could try, but it seems to be really helpful in bringing down those average and fasting glucose values if we're seeing kind of some dysregulated patterns. But I think the healthier you are and the leaner you are and the more good things you're doing, the less you need to lean on more fasting because everything's already going well. So I don't think like you need to do a three-day fast if you're a healthy, young, lean individual. I think that's really unnecessary. 
So those are kind of some of my caveats around intermittent fasting as well. I really appreciate that. And I also appreciate how you continue to emphasize most people, you know, because yeah. there's always <laughs> there's going to be always exceptions. Yeah. yeah, always exceptions to the rule. And it's just figuring out like, am I the exception or where yeah. do I fall in the most category? All right, Kara, I really appreciate this conversation. Um, I, we definitely went more in depth than we have on the show before. So I always like to bring new, fresh, new, fresh blood to the show. <laughs> um, can you tell folks if they're interested in... NutriSense, where they can find you and where they can learn more and how they could potentially get themselves set up with a two-week trial. Yeah, absolutely. So to sign up, you just go to our website, which is NutriSense.io. And then we have a few different programs. We have one where you just get the one CGM, no commitment, and that's really great if you want to try it out or you want to just get a snapshot in time of what's going on. Um, so you can sign up there or you can do a more monthly recurring program where you get two CGMs a month. And that's really good if you know you have some progress to make or you want to do a bunch of experimentation around different diets and fasting protocols and all these things we touched on. Uh, so you just sign up on our website and then we send everything to you and that's all you have to do. Cool. Um, you guys definitely check it out. I think you'll be super into this, especially if, if you do well with data and you respond well to data and you like to geek out on data. I think this is a great, a great option for you. All right, Kara, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Erin. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.